0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF trends and
1: ETF database or any of its affiliates. ETF trends and ETF database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF trends
0: and ETF database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: This week's podcast is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we are on the cusp of a sustainability revolution that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. Visit gsam.com slash ETFs to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. Don't get All right, joining me this
2: week will be Laura Krieger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. Last Monday, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, along with two SEC commissioners, they came out and publicly made some statements regarding leveraged and inverse ETFs. And their focus was really on the risks these products can pose to retail investors and even the broader financial markets. They also talked about the need for a better regulatory framework around these ETFs and those sorts of things. But the timing of these statements was... Very interesting, to say the least, because it was right after the SEC approved a Leverage VIX Futures ETF and an Inverse VIX Futures ETF, like literally a day later. And I don't want to completely lose the plot here, but that then, of course, got me thinking, well, why don't we have a Bitcoin ETF yet, right? We're okay with investors having double leverage VIX exposure, but not a Bitcoin ETF. Doesn't make sense. Well, Laura and I are going to unpack all of this today today. Nobody covers a regulatory angle uh, on ETFs better than she does. So we'll get into all of this in just a moment. I'll then be joined by Moritz Pott, founder and CEO of Don Global, who earlier this year, they launched the Asian Growth Cubs ETF, ticker Cubs. Love the ticker. Uh, This ETF focuses on some of the fastest growing countries in Asia. These are emerging and frontier market countries. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because... Most investors know emerging markets have not been a great place to be. They basically haven't worked for the better part of a decade. So I'm interested in hearing Moritz's investment case here. And obviously, we'll focus on the exposure offered specifically by Cubs. But I also want to get into how investors should approach emerging markets overall. And you'll find out pretty quickly, Moritz has deep, deep expertise in this space. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Travis Briggs, CEO and partner of Robo Global, who currently offers three ETFs led by the flagship Robo Global Robotics and Automation ETF that has about $1.8 billion invested in it. The other two ETFs cover healthcare technology and artificial intelligence. Uh, We'll look at the indexes behind all three of those ETFs and also just peer into the future a little bit, uh, discuss whether. Terminator robots are coming for us at some point or whether we'll all be automated out of our jobs anytime soon. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends' Laura Krigger.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
0: There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected.
2: Laura, it's been a little while. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It's been an eventful couple of months for sure in New Orleans. Well, it is
2: certainly (laughs) great to have you back. And I'm really interested in, in covering this topic this week. So, look, last Monday, SEC Chair Gary Gensler did come out and said he's directing SEC staff to review complex financial products, right, specifically leverage and inverse ETFs. And I want to start by reading just a portion of his comments. He said, quote, These ETPs can pose risks even to sophisticated investors and can potentially create system-wide risks by operating in unanticipated ways when markets experience volatility or stress conditions. And he also referenced the risk post specifically to retail investors, who, of course, may not understand these products at all. And then following Gensler's statement, SEC Commissioners Lee and Crenshaw, they came out and issued another statement uh, discussing this need to update the regulatory framework around these products. But as you heard me mention at the top, here's the real kicker. All of this came literally one business day after the SEC actually approved the listing of two new volatility shares ETFs, a a two times long VIX futures ETF and a short VIX futures ETF, which if everyone recalls, there used to be a short VIX futures product XIV that blew up in 2018 definitely did hurt some investors. So look, I I know a lot to (laughs) unpack here. I'm just going to hand this over to you. What did you make of all this? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty rich, like you did, right? Because here's the SEC uh, approving these products and then in the same breath kind of blasting them for being dangerous to investors. But, you know, I dug into the filings a little bit and, and kind of considered the words and that the, the commission had put down. It seems like they approved the products because both the – or rather, they approved the rule change that would allow these products to list, I should be specific – because it seems like the exchange and the sponsor velocity or uh, volatility shares, uh, they had done what they needed to do to prove to the SEC that they had met the letter of the law as it exists currently. But perhaps the filing may have also rehighlighted the fact that maybe the law needs some updating. So, um, you know, I should I guess back up and set the scene a little bit. There are currently over two hundred leveraged and inverse products on the market now. They're worth, worth a collective $78 billion in assets under management. Um, leveraged and inverse products are uh, bringing in a not unsubstantial amount of money this year. Uh, leveraged products brought in $4 billion. Inverse have brought in uh, another $6 billion in new net assets. It's kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what we've seen flow into ETFs in general this year, but it's not unsubstantial. Uh, compared to the size of this market. Um, and it's not unusual or unexpected, right? Because we're still in times of, of unease in the markets, volatility, the pandemic, uh, supply chain woes, and so on and so forth. There's a real appetite, I think, for levered plays, uh, especially among, like you said, the, the retail crowd, You know, not necessarily mom and pop investor, but maybe the Reddit day trader, right? Uh, a lot of these funds are are based around these easy to understand, easy to grok themes like tw- you know, two times silver miners or two times cloud computing stocks or whatever. So it's easy to see how they'd have or investors would would think that they have an intuitive sense of how they work um, in a way that maybe something as esoteric as like a multi-factor, low volatility, high value, mid cap stock, you know, X, Y, Z um, ETF might not make the same sort of intuitive Uh, sense. Now, as long as I have been covering ETFs, (laughs) these things have been getting flack from all corners, uh, from regulators, from uh, industry participants and so on. But it seems like, as you pointed out lately in some of the the most recent comments that uh, Gensler and co. have made, there's more teeth to those those comments. There's more appetite to update the rules again. Um, And we can get into what those rules uh, what those new rules might entail, but in specific, but the high level version is that basically the the SEC wants better communication uh, for investors around the complexities and the risks of these funds. There was an interesting line in the documentation there about possibly making it so that uh, there would be an alert that pops up to investors, maybe a little pop up that says, "Hey, you're buying a leveraged DTN, and here's what the risks are when you know you place your order in your Schwab account." that would potentially help them be more informed uh, and make more informed decisions. Now, like, I'm a cynic. I don't know that that's going to stop anybody who really wants to buy one of these things. But, you know, who knows? Maybe the SEC knows something I don't. So,
2: But I guess going back to the volatility shares ETFs uh, where the SEC approving these to list, I mean, h- how do you reconcile this? Because, look, look, let me read you some of these comments from Gary Gensler and the two uh, commissioners regarding the approval of these. <clears throat> so Gensler said... Quote, though the listing and trading of these products, including the listing and trading of the two ETPs that the commission voted to approve last Friday, can be consistent with the Exchange Act, that doesn't mean the products are right for every investor. I encourage all investors to consider these risks carefully before investing in these products. I believe the potential rulemaking could strengthen the investor protection around these products. And then the two commissioners yeah. said, uh, quote, by approving the These rule changes to list these ETFs, we want to be clear that the commission is not expressing a view as to these product suitability, either as a general matter or with respect to any specific investor. And so it just seems given these comments and you you sort of marry that with what happened to XIV back in in 2018, and I know these products are structured different than than XIV, but how do you reconcile this with the SEC approving those volatility shares ETFs?
0: It's a good question. And I, I flagged the same quotes. I mean, basically what the SEC is signaling loud and clear is that a rule is coming. Rule changes are coming. Uh, you know, the these products met the current rules as they exist right now. But will they meet the rules in the future? Uh, you know, or, 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 you know, how will the rules have have changed the rules are going to be changing is what I'm trying to say. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting you bring up this specific example of the volatility shares uh, products. They are, for what it's worth, they are different than the products that were at the center of the Volmageddon controversy, right? They're, they're different in some key ways, right? So the first of all, the the first and foremost um, thing is that these are ETFs. They are not ETNs. The Volmageddon ETNs XIV, that, that was an ETN. And an ETN is a debt note. It doesn't hold anything. These are ETFs that are going to actually like hold uh, VIX futures, right? So, so there's going to be a portfolio, right? Um, the second, they're not going to be doing a daily rebalance at a single point in time uh, using the 4 p.m. VIX settlement price. The VIX settles uh, once a day at 4 p.m. They're not going to be doing that. They're going to be using a time-weighted uh, average price to set their closing value, um, and and have the ability to extend that uh, averaging window um, over a longer period as needed. So having a broader window in which to rebalance the fund should help sort of mitigate uh, the impact that this fund might have in creating like a spike in trading volume at the end of the day that could potentially distort the market and so on and so forth. So there are some other, you know, Uh, distinguishing factors as well. But the big takeaway is that this is um, very much a a lessons learned ETF. And, uh, you know, in fact, volatility shares used that language in the rule change filing about how, quote, I'm quoting here, lessons learned from the failures of previous products are at the heart of the new methodology. So, like, nobody's trying to recreate uh, the Volmageddon ETN. They're trying to build a better uh, and and a better version that will hopefully lead to less catastrophe.
2: Laura, you know, I'm always looking for a Bitcoin ETF angle. And if you uh, read the statement from the two commissioners closely, they do talk specifically about the additional protections afforded by ETFs under the Investment Company Act of 1940, Versus products under the Securities Act of 1933, and maybe I'm just uh, turning into Sherlock Holmes now, looking for you know any clue anywhere <laughs> on Bitcoin ETF approval. But I almost wonder if in the SEC's review of Bitcoin ETF applications, they sort of stumbled over some concerns that hadn't been previously addressed. So, so not concerns with Bitcoin ETFs themselves, but again, I think to what you were alluding to, just this overall regulatory framework around more complex ETPs. But that specific language did stand out to me. I mean, did did that catch your attention at all? Or am I just looking for stuff now as it relates to Bitcoin ETFs? Like I'm wondering, we know these futures based Bitcoin ETFs are up for approval here next week. And I, I kind of wonder if this is just setting the stage and, and they are trying to make that regulatory framework more robust as these products roll out. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. I'm going to get you a houndstooth hat. I love it. Like just maybe, you know, Sherlock Sherlock Holmes style. Um, yeah, and a pipe too. So, you know, I think there were a lot of factors that kind of have been percolating for a while. But uh, according to the footnotes, and I I know that you, Nate, read the footnotes, of course. Um, the, the ruling here had actually, this issue uh, has been on the commission's radar for years and years. And in fact, they actually tried uh, about 10 years ago to change the rules and the regulatory framework around leverage and inverse products. Uh, Back in 2011, they just sort of gave up because they couldn't come to a consensus on it. Um, But now, yeah, they're taking a second look at it, not just in the context of a Bitcoin ETF, um, though I think that is a large part of it, uh, but also in the context of what happened last year with, you know, lest we forget, uh, around uh, spring last year, there were a slew of leveraged and inversed uh, energy ETNs and treasury ETNs. That broke their minimum price thris- uh, broke their minimum price threshold, and they were um, you know forced to close and liquidate, and some were even delisted. Uh, you know, investors were out of luck trying to get their money back. So, this has been a known uh, bug for a year or for years and years. Uh, you know, in in Lee and Crenshaw's statement and the commissioner's statement, they specifically called out the fact that 33 Act funds don't have the same. Sort of investor protections that 40 Act funds do regarding like um, uh, board uh, assignments and um, different reporting metrics and so on. Um, there was an interesting thing there though that I wanted to tease out, which was that 40 Act funds have limitations on the on their ability to incur leverage, and I think that's going to be interesting because leverage is crucial to the equation when you're talking about futures exposure. Uh, Dave actually has a a great piece on this up on our site this morning, digging into how it all breaks down. Um, But if you're going to limit the ability of a fund that holds futures to acquire leverage, uh, you may potentially impact its ability to track, you know, the underlying assets. So there could be, uh, you know, uh, maybe consequences unintended or intended about surrounding, um, you know, trying to update the framework for a 33 act fund that holds futures products uh, in in regards to all of this.
2: And that makes sense to me. I, I, I guess I just struggle. There are just so many contradictions out there. Like last week, not only did the SEC <laughs> approve uh, those two volatility shares ETFs, but but guess what launched a two times daily inverse marijuana ETF. Right? It's from ETFMG. Uh, they already had a, a a two times positive levered marijuana ETF ticker MJXL. And honestly, I, I know we've talked about this before. I don't have a problem with either of those products. But how in the world can the SEC justify the existence of those and not a Bitcoin ETF? And I, I know I'm a broken record here. I, I get it. It just doesn't make sense to me. I, I just don't get it.
0: I wish I could provide some clarity around it. But yeah, I'm in the same boat. It doesn't make a ton of sense because there is an inconsistency there about you know marijuana as a as an industry cannabis is a really promising industry to invest in uh there's a lot of really exciting growth opportunities in it but it also has a lot of systemic risk and in in fact we lest we all forget marijuana is still illegal at the federal level like it's still uh classified in in such a way that you know you you can it's a felony to possess right so until that gets reconciled there's always going to be that um that federal or or governmental regulatory risk surrounding these products. Um, So that's a pretty big systemic risk. Uh, Cryptocurrency is not illegal uh, to own or to hold or to trade and and, and all of that. So, you know, yeah, there is an inconsistency here. Maybe we are at the cusp of that inconsistency being resolved.
2: Well, and again, that gets back to the whole point around these comments, that maybe the SEC is trying to put a strong framework in place so we can start to remove some of these contradictions from the system. Uh, I'm curious, what what do you think would happen if an ETF issuer uh, just converted an existing ETF into a Bitcoin ETF like uh, MJ did back in the day when they converted that Latin American real estate ETF into a marijuana ETF, right? When it seemed like regulators weren't quite there yet. What do you think would happen if someone tried that with a Bitcoin ETF? You think the SEC would like immediately be knocking on the door?
0: You know, it's, it's funny you mention that. I, I uh, have heard, you know, over the years that the SEC was in conversation with issuers to make sure that something like that never happened again, Um, And now we have seen a lot of uh, funds convert uh, their investment objective, but we've never seen something that uh, quite as controversial as changing a Latin American real estate fund into a a cannabis ETF, right? It just hasn't happened again. I doubt that would ever fly. Uh, with the SEC, the, the the hammer would come down pretty quickly.
2: I would like to see someone try just to see what happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just a couple of minutes left. I'm going to just continue to derail our conversation on the regulatory angle, although this is related. So as I mentioned, next Monday, we do have this, uh, th- this ProShares Bitcoin Futures ETF that uh, could be up for approval, or at least they, they would be in the regulatory uh, window to launch this product. Do you think that'll happen? You and I haven't talked about this. Uh, do Do you think we're going to see a futures based Bitcoin ETF this month?
0: It's a good question, and I know um, some very smart people think the you know the can the SEC is just SEC is just going to kick the can down the road a little bit longer. Um, I think we might actually get some clarity on this, and I I do think that maybe we will see Bitcoin futures ETF be approved. But I want to. Big caveat there. I do not think that necessarily means a physical Bitcoin ETF is going to be approved. Um, I think that, I mean, this is a much bigger topic than we have time for, um, but one does not necessarily follow the other. And Gensler has very clearly and repeatedly said that he favors the concept of Bitcoin futures with all their you know pros and cons. And there are many cons. Um, he favors that structure. Uh more so than a physical cryptocurrency ETF might, you know, might have its chances. So, yes, to answer your question, I I actually do think we will probably see an approval uh, or many approvals soon, sooner rather than later. That's a big statement
2: um, from you. You may have seen uh, I'm on yeah. record. I think I, I said there's an 80 percent chance we see a Bitcoin futures, <clears throat> excuse me, product approved in October. Now, my caveat to that, and actually this is a perfect book into our conversation and talking about the, these shares products today. The way that I look at this, if, if, if the SEC does not approve these products here in, in the next couple of weeks, especially after Gensler's comments at the end of September, where he said he looked forward, and by the way, that was the second time he said this, that he looked forward to reviewing products that were in a 40X structure that hold CME traded mm-hmm. Bitcoin futures. If that doesn't happen, then my approval odds will look like a chart of XIV, <laughs> where they're just going to go, they're going to just fall <laughs> off the cliff and go to, uh, to I guess, near zero. Uh, because if, if they can't get their head around this now, and they're not comfortable now, it's like, when will they ever be? Right? Exactly. I just don't know. That exactly. I,
0: I completely agree. You know, they've, they've made enough statements, not just uh, Commissioner Gensler, but uh, other statement, uh, you know, other folks on the um, commission, it just, it, it seems like we are barreling towards a some sort of clarity here uh i can't i mean i i can't imagine that we're gonna see much of a delay maybe maybe there will be a 45 day delay but we will get some clarity by
2: the end no, I agree. And I also agree. I don't think we're going to see a physical Bitcoin ETF anytime soon. I think the SEC will approve yeah. the futures based ETFs, see how those function, make sure everything's working properly with those, that everybody's comfortable. And then a, a physical Bitcoin ETF would follow. I would be shocked if we saw a physical product approved anytime soon. But Laura, okay. so great having you back on the podcast. You know, I love talking about this stuff. I, I really believe nobody covers the regulatory angle of ETFs better than you. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you. So much. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
2: That was Laura Krueger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends.
1: And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: My next guest is Maritz Pott, founder and CEO of Don Global, who earlier this year, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Asian Growth Cubs ETF, ticker symbol Cubs. Uh, excellent ticker. This covers five of the fastest growing countries in Asia. And Don Global is looking to carve out a unique niche. Uh, they're, they're the first ETF issuer dedicated to active thematic investing in emerging and frontier growth markets. This is an area of expertise for Moritz. Uh, he's been a public and private equity investment partner at Kingsway Capital, who's a frontier market specialist with over $2 billion in assets. He was also previously at Goldman Sachs, where he focused on commodities and emerging markets. And he's now on the line with me from London. Moritz, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our discussion today. I really enjoy speaking to you about this.
2: Well, thank you. And let's start with the ETF itself. And then I want to get into the broader investment case and how you view investing in emerging markets overall, because as I'm sure you're aware, this has been a, a very challenging area for many investors, to say the least. So the Asian Growth Cubs ETF, this is actively managed, as I noted at the top, this covers five of the fastest growing countries. Just explain your investment process and what this ETF ultimately holds.
3: So, this this ETF focuses on five countries in Southeast Asia specifically, which are large, liquid, fast-growing, digitally enabled, but have low-to-no exposure to foreign investors. Because there's no ADR coverage, there's low-to-no ETF coverage, and you can't really buy these these companies directly, given the logistical issues of opening an account. If you look at the indices, their exposure is less than 2%. So it's a critical diversification into what I believe will be the biggest economies in the end of tomorrow, outside of the, the five biggest today. But you can't get exposure to these economies today. And these economies are different. They're young, educated, and they have digital adoption levels surpassing most countries in the world, excluding China, and yet they're still not included or still not accessible. So I think it's a key diversification for any emerging market strategy. And it's a view on taking, uh, looking at the economies of tomorrow and the sectors of tomorrow.
2: And what are the five countries?
3: The countries are Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Philippines, Vietnam. Five countries, 860 million people, 350 million smartphones, over $2.5 trillion GDP, a GDP roughly as large as India's GDP today. And In- so these are...
2: Well, we'll talk a little bit about your process. So if you have these five countries, so Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Philippines, and and Vietnam, how do you go about selecting the individual securities within these countries? What's the process?
3: So there's a process. The universe is 3,500 companies. We first have a a five-layer top-down quantitative company screen, followed by a three-layer bottom-up quantitative company analysis. That basically brings us to a portfolio of less than 50 companies. Which we equally weight, semi-annual rebalance. The portfolio is geared to what I would say tomorrow's economy, so towards digital industries, including technology, digital banking, healthcare, fast-moving consumer goods. So we avoid the legacy industries that people are worried about getting involved in. We don't touch cement, steel, tobacco, or telco, and we avoid standard enterprises.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting to me because I did note that there were some ESG exclusions here. What what's the rationale behind that?
3: So the, the rationale is that ESG in the emerging markets is a really important way to manage risk. So what does that mean? For us, every company in the portfolio we engage with, we're not only backing the company but also what we call the management team, so the jockey and the horse. And that means that we basically get to know these companies. In the past 18, in the past six months that's been through Zoom. I'm actually going back to the region next month, I'm going to Bangladesh and Pakistan next month again to see companies face to face. And as part of the ESG framework, we have a strict framework that basically excludes certain industries today. We'd like to move to an ESG exclusion policy over, inclusion policy over time, once we can get third-party ESG scoring. But ESG for us ultimately comes down to managing risk in these countries. It's really important that, yes, the opportunity is, is very exciting. Yes, there's immense growth. But you have to manage the risks surrounding those opportunities.
2: And you began alluding to this a, a bit earlier, but why these five countries in particular? Out of all the, the frontier and emerging markets, why focus on just these five? So
3: I'm focused on large, liquid, yet overlooked countries which have secular growth tailwinds. So we're talking about large populations, each of these countries has more than 100 million people, Indonesia has over 270 million people. These five countries together are going to have a billion people by 2035 based on World Bank projections. If you look at the historical 20-year growth record, it's amongst the fastest growing region in the world in dollar terms, it has a much better FX track record than India, Brazil, or Russia. It has amongst the highest rates of digital adoption in the world higher than India, higher than LATAM. Only China is ahead of these countries. If you look at the inclusion or the exposure, they're basically excluded from all EM indices. And that's by virtue of the way EM indices are are constructed. We can get to that in a bit. The the processes are broken. You can't get exposed to these countries or economies very easily. And lastly, these countries are interesting from a valuation perspective. U.S. trades at all-time highs. EM indices dominated by five countries' trade at all-time highs early this year before the sell-off. Yet the countries are focused on trade below that ten-year average, so the opportunity is to enter at attractive valuations before foreign investors return in secularly growing economies.
2: You you mentioned uh, population earlier, just to give everyone an idea. Did did I see the stat correctly that Bangladesh is the size of Iowa, but its population is over half the total of the U.S. population? Is that correct?
3: Correct. Yeah, Bangladesh is over 170 million people,
2: and yet it's
3: smaller than Iowa. And I think what it's underscores is not just the size of the population, but also the density of the population. To give you an idea, the combined population growth in the five countries I'm focused on is expected to exceed the population growth you're going to see across China, India, and LATAM between 2020 and 2050. That kind of gives you a a sense of the scale of population growth you're seeing in these countries. And this is young, educated, digitally-enabled population growth.
2: You mentioned these five countries being mostly excluded from some of the larger I- indices. I'm curious, do you view the Cubs ETF as a complement to that broad emerging market exposure? Is it a replacement? And, you know, obviously you are excluding big economies like China and India that do have a large allocation and broad emerging market ETF. So how, how do you see Cubs in a portfolio? So uh,
3: Cubs, I think, is an important complement to any EN allocation. Today, EM indices are 80, 85% concentrated on five countries. If you look at greater China risk, China and Taiwan are over 50%. I have zero China, zero Taiwan, zero India, zero Korea, zero Taiwan. I focus on what I believe are the next generation of emerging market countries. So these countries are uncorrelated, under-indexed, technology-heavy, and ultimately, they are not exposed in the indices today. EM indices are broken. They're broken by virtue of their concentration on five countries, But also by virtue of their composition korea and taiwan have a higher gdp per capita than italy spain or portugal yet they're still classified as emerging markets if you look at the ex-china indices they still retain more exposures to china than they do to cubs again underscoring why these indices are broken so cubs is geared on large liquid hard to access em diversification and on folks on what i would call the economies and industries of tomorrow
2: and talk more about valuations which you mentioned earlier and maybe just the overall investment thesis because i can't tell you how many times over the past really 10 years i've had guests on this podcast who they've pounded the table and screamed emerging markets are undervalued right that it's only a matter of time before they outperform and while there have certainly been short periods of outperformance uh, 2017 comes to mind overall it has been a very tough go for investors here what changes that? Like, like, why should investors believe now is different? So I think,
3: you know, the last decade of, uh, between 2010 and 2020 was one of the toughest decades in the end for a while. But I, there's reason to believe that this decade may be different than the last decade. If you're starting off from a growth perspective, if you look at where its growth expected to come from this decade, it's in emerging Asia. There's a billion people joining the Asian middle class this decade alone. If you look at valuations, EM valuations, especially in emerging Asia, trade below that senior average. If you look at flows, EM investors have essentially concentrated around the largest five economies in EM or they've gone to developed markets. They're looking to go back to emerging Asia. And what you see, you see a proliferation of private deal activity in emerging Asia. So you had more unicorns announced in H1 2021 than you had in the total previous decade. And so far, that activity is focused on private markets, but it will also flow over into public markets as these local unicorns go public locally. And they'll go, local, they'll go public locally because regulators in these, in these countries want to stimulate the growth of local capital markets, not global capital markets. And in that way, the Cubs will be fundamentally different to China, India, and LATAM, where investors could rely on New York ADR listings to access these countries, which they will be able to in the Cubs. Moreover than that, if you think about from a macro perspective, there's increasing talk in the market about dollar weakness and commodity price strength. And those two variables combined should provide positive tailwinds for EM economies. And then lastly, from a diversification perspective, the U.S. has had obviously a record decade for the stock market. And that's obviously elevated valuations, but that's also increased an in, 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 increased share of U.S. exposure in the average equity portfolio in the U.S. So as people look to diversify beyond the U.S., and they potentially look to diversify into emerging markets or diversify within emerging markets, Cubs is an essential allocation that they can't get elsewhere. But is essentially betting on the economy of tomorrow in emerging markets.
2: March, I think you did a great job of laying out the case there. I will tell you one question that we still hear regarding emerging markets surrounds the impact of COVID and where some yep. of these countries stand. And as it relates specifically to the Cubs countries, can you talk more about the COVID, uh, COVID impact here? I, I'm just curious what the pandemic experience has been like in these places and where things stand now from both a health standpoint and also just an economic, uh, everyday getting back to normal standpoint.
3: So I think COVID has basically been a story of two halves for these countries. 2020, the regions 2020, the region was largely unaffected which also was evident in the resilient growth you saw in 2020. Bangladesh and Vietnam were amongst the fast-growing countries in the world last year. 2021, the region lacked on vaccinations. That basically led to disruption primarily concentrated on Q3. So, yes, there has been unfortunate economic and socioeconomic and, and health disruption. But what you're seeing is that the countries locked down for shorter and therefore were disrupted for shorter than other economies outside of the region. So, 2021, there has been impact. You've seen that in Q3. What you're now starting to see in Q4 is the economies are actually rapidly reopening. Indonesia's reopening, Vietnam's reopening, Pakistan and Bangladesh have already reopened. That's why I'm able to go there next month. And I think the key takeaway from the past 18 months is the rate at which digital adoption has accelerated in Southeast Asia is faster than anywhere else in the world. And to give you two specific statistics Facebook releases a report every year about Southeast Asia every September. It came out last month. Facebook expects 80% of Southeast Asia consumers by the end of 2021 to be digital consumers. Now, if that's correct, that would suggest that digital adoption in Southeast Asia is, is the highest in the world outside of China. If you look at McKinsey, McKinsey came out with a fintech report last month about digital banking in Asia and emerging Asia. And again, McKinsey forecasts fintech penetration in emerging Asia to be at the highest level globally ahead of China by the end of 2021 coming from behind. So not only is it high on the absolute level, but it's also accelerated in terms of the growth. So I think the bottom line is the last 18 months have seen an incredible acceleration in digital adoption in the region. And then I think lastly, on the macro side, we've well, seen that governments have been more careful and they're frankly uh, you know, not been able to spend as much as a percent of GDP as some of the more developed economies. So coming out of this COVID period, you're not seeing a material increase in the indebtedness of these countries as a percent of GDP relative to other emerging markets or relative to developed markets.
2: And what, what about just this concept of supply chain relocation away from China? Uh, can you expand on that? I mean, have these countries been beneficiaries of that over this, this COVID time period?
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I think, as, you know, obviously, as you've seen the supply chain you know, uh, disruption, but also you've seen the, the great you know, U.S.-China trade war, these countries have, to some extent, benefited. The way they benefit is that you've seen supply chains reallocate out of China, And before they go back to Europe and the U.S., they try and find an alternative in the region. So specifically, you've seen supply chains reallocate to Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. And what that basically means is the transfer of jobs, transfer of knowledge, transfer of capital into these economies, which net-net is good for these economies and also manages the current account better. So overall, I think the supply chain disruption uh, has net-net been a, 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 a net positive for these countries. But at the same time, um, you know, it's still relatively early in the journey so far.
2: All right, March. just a couple minutes left before I let you go. I know you do travel regularly to the Cubs countries, but did I see correctly that you've actually traveled to 90 countries overall? Is, is that right?
3: Correct. Over 90 countries in the world in the, in the past 33 years.
2: All right, so Cubs aside, what's the best place you've ever visited? What, what's your favorite?
3: Uh, I think some of my favorite places are, are actually in, the, you know, in Africa. I spent a summer working for a government there. Uh, I've, I've spent, you know, someone's working for non-profits. I've also been on the boards of companies in emerging markets. In terms of specific countries uh, that I that I've really enjoyed, uh, I spend a lot of time in, in uh, Zimbabwe, um, in Argentina, um, in, in Vietnam, uh, also in um, in the Middle East. Uh, I you know spend quite a lot of time. Um, so I, I'd say that my, I've been very fortunate to have travelled to a number of different places primarily through work. And um, those are some of the places I, I remember fondly. And you know, frankly, my experience in emerging markets stretches back to 15 years ago, when I did my first internship in emerging markets for a nonprofit, following summer for government, following summer for a, a microfinance bank. So I think I've seen different sides to these emerging market economies across different geographies.
2: And do you have a favorite among the uh, Cubs countries, or do you love all your children equally?
3: Uh, Well, you said I'm Dutch, and uh, given my Dutch heritage, I I would say that Indonesia is one of the places I I do like to uh, visit, uh, particularly. Uh, And when I talk about Indonesia, I actually prefer to visit places outside of the densely populated areas. Obviously, uh, Java, the main island of Indonesia, which uh, houses over 185 million people, is is, a fascinating place. Uh, But frankly, the opportunities also outside of the the large island of Indonesia are somewhat more interesting SR places I'd be able to visit. From an activity point of view, Bangladesh. I think Bangladesh is, is a, you know, a phenomenal country. It's a special place to visit. Uh, it's a, it has a dynamic and a vibe, which I'd rarely come across in any other city. And again, that's partly because of the dynamics you mentioned earlier, the incredible population density with a young, digital, educated population.
2: Well, congratulations on the ETF. I certainly wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you for joining me this week.
3: Thank you so much for having me Nicole. It was really fun to speak with you.
2: That was Moritz Pott, founder and CEO of Dawn Global.
1: With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF, NUSI, may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss, Quasar Distributors, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by Travis Briggs, CEO and partner of Robo Global, who currently offers three U.S.-listed ETFs, over $2 billion invested, including the very popular Robo Global Robotics and Automation Index ETF, ticker symbol ROBO, which was the first robotics ETF on the market. Uh, Travis is now on the line with me from Dallas. Travis, great to connect. Thanks for joining me.
4: Uh, Nate. Good morning. Glad glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, so look, I want to find out if terminator robots are coming for all of us, but before we do that, let's briefly walk <laughs> through the uh, indexes behind these three Robo Global ETFs, which again includes Robo, the Robo uh, robotics and automation ETF I mentioned at the top, and then the other two are the Robo Global Healthcare Technology and Innovation ETF, ticker HTEC, and the Robo Global Artificial Intelligence ETF, ticker THNQ. Just give us a, a quick snapshot of the indexes behind each of these, and then we can certainly widen out the lens a bit.
4: That sounds great. Um, it's it's hard to believe, but uh, it was uh, eight years ago um, this month that uh, we had created the, the Robo Index, which, as you mentioned, was the, the first uh, investment opportunity focused specifically on robotics automation and, to a lesser extent, AI at that time. Um You know, the the origin and the the core investment thesis was really pretty simple, and and that was um, we believed that there was going to continue to be an inevitable trend of more and more automation. Uh, What was a little more difficult was actually constructing the portfolio at the time. There was, you know, no fact set or database where you could just type in robotics companies. So with the help of some industry experts and, and academics, we took the approach of capturing the entire value chain of automation. We felt like if we could find those companies that are going to benefit from, auto, from automation, they'll do better than the broader market. And so what, what you end up with is a portfolio of, of companies that focus on industrial manufacturing, logistics automation, precision agriculture, surgical robots, all the kind of in-market applications that we see today. But also those enabling components, like uh, if you were to unbundle automation, computing, processing, AI, actuation, how do they move? And, and and we felt like that would give the investors the the most diversified, least volatile exposure to that to that robotic space. Fast forward a few years, um, and watching those subsectors grow that I just mentioned, you know, healthcare really came to the forefront as did artificial intelligence, and and we recognized there was an opportunity to create additional indices, you know, extensions of that robo-index, and and ultimately launched the the healthcare technology uh, index, which uh, really is capturing the the trend, the inevitable trend of the digitization of the the healthcare space. And that includes such things as, you know, AI-based diagnostics, genomics, gene sequencing, which has led to the very recent um, popular understanding of precision medicine. Uh, a great example of that is the current vaccine for uh, COVID uh, and the mRNA application. Uh, there's other exciting opportunities like 3D-printed imp- uh, implants and, of course, surgical robots on the healthcare side. And, then, and we can talk about, we'll get into AI more, but AI in itself, the the expansion of AI from conceptual to uh, commercially or commercially applicable has been uh, extremely amazing and how rapidly it's happened over, I'd say, the last three or four years. I'll pause
2: there. Yeah, well, you mentioned the the subsectors, so healthcare technology and, and artificial intelligence. One thing I'm curious about is you look across these three indexes, how much overlap, is there like should an investor potentially have exposure to all three of these, or does Robo incorporate the other two? Sort of a best ideas approach. How should investors think about these in a portfolio?
4: Well, uh, that's that's a good question, and, and the answer might surprise you. There's there's actually very little overlap uh, amongst the three strategies. Uh, really between the, the healthcare technology and the AI strategy, there's less than five percent overlap. Um, and then when you look at uh, Robo to the AI strategy and Robo to the H tech strategy, there's only about uh, call it 13, 14 percent overlap.
2: One of the things that we've seen, particularly over the past year and a half, is the rise of thematic ETFs, which I would classify uh, these three into. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, I'm curious for, for your perspective on this rise we've seen for thematic exposure. And I think you have investors who will have their core allocations to broader, maybe market cap weighted indexes. But then around the edges, they're using you know, this type of exposure in in looking at disruptive innovation or innovative fields? What's your perspective on that?
4: Yeah, I I gotta tell you, it's been quite a ride and and, and exciting to watch develop. Um, You know, eight years ago, uh, when we launched uh, the the robo index, um, I there was less than a handful of of what would be called thematic strategies. And as as we've just watched them grow, and increase in popularity to a point where, you know, there's over 300 today. Um, I, I think it, it's there's, uh, there's a lot of benefits for investors, uh, and there are some, uh, you know, warning signs that investors should hear, adhere to. And I, I do think that what we've seen is the adoption, the financial advisors have adopted thematics as a silo or an actual sleeve in their portfolio allocation today which is great. That means the market share, the pie is getting a lot bigger for those of us who are producing thematic strategies. What I would advise advisors and those interested in thematic strategies to do is to make sure that you look beyond the name or the ticker symbol and really understand the exposure that you're getting. Because uh, I think as investors, they would be surprised to realize how uh, similarly named strategies can vary so different in exposures.
2: Somewhat on that note, can you talk more about taking an index-based approach with these three ETFs? Because it's interesting. So this topic of thematics has actually come up quite a bit on the show recently. And I feel mm-hmm. like many of the ETFs I've covered have been active, actually including one earlier in, in this podcast and I think some investors would look at areas like, say, robotics and artificial intelligence and healthcare tech, and, and they would say, sure. well, boy, a lot can change quickly here. It seems like an active manager could be more nimble and perhaps better identify opportunities. What's the counter argument to that?
4: Well, I, first, I would suggest that the distinction between the two is probably not as large as you think it is. Uh, if you if you go back to say just the creation of Robo, you know by definition there was a very active component in it because we defined the universe, right? We 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 figured out what are the subsectors that are actually going to make up this space, and then you have to find the companies that go in there. So I, I do think there is a on the on the front end a very active approach in terms of how you define the universe and find those companies, but then you're just putting it into the, the, the passive index wrapper, you know, based off of the, the certain metrics uh, that you would apply there. Um, I would say, you know, these are not traditional indexes. Um, it's, it's not a typical market cap weighted kind of annually rebalanced portfolio that's on autopilot. Uh, we, ba- we rebalance uh, every quarter, uh, and we apply the same, you know, research-driven approach uh, that's similar to active strategies, but just with the with the the, the discipline of index investing uh, on the passive wrapper side.
2: Another interesting, uh, I guess, recurring theme that I'm seeing across your indexes, and and actually, again, this was the case with an ETF we looked at earlier in the podcast, is that all three of your indexes incorporate an ESG overlay, so they adhere to an ESG policy that was established by Robo Global. Can you talk more about that and, and why you think that's important?
4: Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, it, the the whole ESG overlay is is not new uh, to us. We we actually started incorporating ESG into our process back in in two thousand seventeen. Uh, certainly before it uh, became such a popular topic in the U.S. Part of that was driven by um, our strategies that um, we run over in Europe, and, and you've seen and probably all heard that Europe has been much more quick in adopting and implementing um, fairly strict ESG policies around um, institutional investors. Um, and so we've, we've tried to adhere to, to their standards. And and actually, to date, our uh, ESG policy level is, is now compliant with all the strictest ESG standards in Europe. Uh, and what that means is, you know, we've essentially Eliminated all companies that that fail to uh, adhere to what's called the United Nations SDG Sustainable Development Goals. um, As well as, uh, you know, eliminating all companies involved in the controversial activities around, you know, environmental social governance. Uh, Those would, you know, such things like weapons, uh, interestingly, fossil fuels, that could be another topic, but, uh, and, you know, human and, and labor rights. So... You know, it, it, it's more of a function of the, and we, we, we have the type of portfolios that naturally lend to themselves to being ESG friendly. You know, in a lot of areas, when you look at precision agriculture and a lot of the healthcare work we're doing, um, you know, it by definition are, are following in line with the sustainability goals of, of uh, a lot of the ESG policy.
2: So, in terms of the overall investment case here, as you offered a quick snapshot of, of these three indexes earlier, I think most investors hear things like robotics and artificial intelligence and healthcare tech. And it's intuitive. I think most investors get that these will all be a growing part of our lives moving forward. I don't think many people would question that. However, uh, just because we know that, that doesn't necessarily make these good investment opportunities. So can you talk more about sort of the mechanical investment perspective here? In other words, I I think investors get the story part, the narrative part of these areas. But what about things like valuations, for example?
4: Yeah, no, that's a very good point and and draws a little bit on what I was talking about the exposure earlier. But, you know, I I would say this. Let's take the big picture of disruptive technologies. Yeah are difficult to value, uh, typically under you know traditional metrics. Because and, and this is important, we, we don't know what to what extent, you know, their addressable market is actually going to grow. Right? That not only as they are kind of displacing the incumbent in tech, but but more importantly, you know, they're also creating entirely new markets and, and in some cases business processes. So, you know, what we've found is that Wall Street, particularly, you know, like when you're looking at the smaller, to mid-cap, the smaller to mid-cap companies, you know, Wall Street hasn't historically covered them well because they tend to cross over multiple sectors, one. And, and, and two, um, it's just hard to estimate, and typically their growth has been underestimated. That said, um, you know, most of the companies that we've identified generally have one or, or several of – Of these characteristics, and it's either superior growth, um, you see a high return of capital, and almost always really fat margins, right? And all three of those things collectively tend to lead to kind of a long runway of growth opportunity.
2: And before I let you go, at the top, sort of tongue-in-cheek, I mentioned the uh, Terminator robots coming for all of us. Right. In in all seriousness, where are we in sort of the life cycle of development in robotics and automation and AI? And I know, obviously, innovation will continue accelerating in these areas, but can you offer any additional context or color on where this is all heading?
4: Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, As it relates, I'll I'll break it out, robotics and then AI. As it relates to, to robotics, you know, we have to remember, the robotics actually goes back to uh, the, the General, General Motors' car uh, manufacturing plan in 1962 when the first robot was implemented. And it, it really has been, up until about the last 10 years, a really slow and steady development. And and several things have happened. One is just the traditional cost curve, right? The the cost of the technology has continued to come down, and the technology itself has gotten better, uh, and equally as important as what you're seeing right now is this transition from just a pre-programmed, expensive robot to now an actual intelligent system that, that can learn continually as as it develops. And so, right now, you know, I used to get at this all the time when you talk to investors: "Is yeah, I get it. It's it's a great story, but it, you know, robotics that's kind of niche." And 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 if you really take a step back and look at it, it's it's the opposite of teach. It's automation is in every single sector of our economy, and it's continuing. To, and the pace of change is continuing to accelerate. So, you know, I, I feel very confident that we are in the early, early stages of the implementation of robotics. And, and one example, and one that I'm particularly excited about, that over crosses over with the healthcare aspect, is uh, sur- sur- uh, surgical robotics. Uh, right now, there's, there's less than a two percent penetration of surgical robotics globally, and what you're seeing with the uh, em- the emergence of 5G, um, the 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 time to communicate with these surgical robots, as well as the latency, has come down to a point where a doctor in Boston can operate on a patient in California. To me, that has very interesting applications, and and the last one. Nate, and I'll be real quick with this. Is artificial intelligence? There's no doubt it's going to be a major game changer uh, over over the next five to ten years. Um, just the the, the the process and the, the speed of change that we've seen just over the last three years is is truly amazing. Uh, and where I think where, where I think you'll see it pop up uh, most recently is uh, through the the total transforming of the transportation industry uh, through level five autonomous driving. Um, I think that is going to continue to accelerate and will have significant implications on on the economy. Uh, And then the other, again, back to healthcare, which is particularly exciting to me, is uh, the the advancing abilities in uh, diagnostics and creating customized medicine will, I think, dramatically change the way that we um, interact and, and receive our health care going forward.
2: Just briefly here, I mean, should people be worried about their jobs at all, just getting automated out of work? You mentioned trucking, for example. Have you seen any good insight or research? Do the jobs just move elsewhere? Is it ultimately net job creation? I know this becomes a political football with talking about things like universal basic income. I don't want to get down that path. But I'm just curious if you've seen any good research or or you have any good insight in terms of how this impacts jobs. I
4: thought we were going to get out of this without that question. it always it always comes up um, so i, I have a, a couple of thoughts on that is is one as you know technology has over the last hundred years has displaced jobs uh, but historically it's continued to uh, provide more opportunities uh, than it's displaced what we what we see right now is a little in my opinion a little more concerning is you know it, we we don't really have a jobs problem there's more jobs available than we can fill Uh, i believe the last number i saw was you know up to two and a half million qualified manufacturing jobs that we just we can't fill um i think it gets back to um an education issue and you know that's one of the things one of the reasons why we support stem and high school robotics is we really think that um there if we if we could do a better job of of educating. Um, and I, I think there's plenty, plenty of jobs out there and will continue to be plenty of jobs
3: for for our
2: population. Well, Travis, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate the insight this week. Fascinating topics for sure. Thank you for joining me.
4: You bet. I enjoyed it. Thanks.
2: That was Travis Briggs, CEO and partner of Robo Global. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Zhang Bu, head of US exchange traded products at NASDAQ. We'll talk ETF growth, innovation, education, and then Ryan Krueger, co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, will spotlight the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.